Chapter forty four of El Dorado by Baroness Orzy. Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in September two thousand and seven. Chapter forty four. The Halt at Crecy. Now then, citizen, don't go to sleep. This is Crecy, our last halt. Armand woke up from his last dream. They had been moving steadily on since they left Abbeville soon after dawn. The rumble of the wheels, the swaying and rocking of the carriage, the interminable patter of the rain had lulled him into a kind of wakeful sleep. Chauvelin had already alighted from the coach. He was helping Marguerite to descend. Armand shook the stiffness from his limbs and followed in the wake of his sister. Always those miserable soldiers round them, with their dank coats of rough blue cloth and the red caps on their heads. Armand pulled Marguerite's hand through his arm and dragged her with him into the house. The small city lay damp and grey before them. The rough pavement of the narrow street glistened with the wet, reflecting the dull, leaden sky overhead. The rain beat into the puddles, the slate roofs shone in the cold, wintry light. This was Crecy, the last halt of the journey, so Chauvelin had said. The party had drawn rein in front of a small one-storied building that had a wooden veranda running the whole length of its front. The usual low, narrow room greeted Armand and Marguerite as they entered. The usual mildewed walls with the colour wash flowing away in streaks from the unsympathetic beam above. The same device, Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, scribbled in charcoal above the black iron stove. The usual musty, close atmosphere, the usual smell of onion and stale cheese, and the usual hard, straight benches and central table with its soiled and tattered cloth. Marguerite seemed dazed and giddy. She had been five hours in that stuffy coach, with nothing to distract her thoughts except the rain-sodden landscape on which she had ceaselessly gazed since the early dawn. Armand led her to the bench, and she sank down on it, numb and inert, resting her elbows on the table, and her head in her hands. "'If it were only all over,' she sighed involuntarily. "'Armand, at times now I feel as if I were not really sane, as if my reason had already given way. Tell me, do I seem mad to you at times?' He sat down beside her and tried to chafe her little cold hands. There was a knock at the door, and without waiting for permission, Chauvelin entered the room. "'My humble apologies to you, Lady Blakeney,' he said in his usual suave manner. "'But our worthy host informs me that this is the only room in which he can serve a meal. Therefore I am forced to intrude my presence upon you.' Though he spoke with outward politeness, his tone had become more peremptory, less bland, and he did not await Marguerite's reply before he sat down opposite to her, and continued to talk airily. "'An ill-conditioned fellow, our host,' he said, "'quite reminds me of our friend Brogard of the Chagri in Calais.' You remember him, Lady Blakeney?" "'My sister is giddy and overtired,' interposed Armand firmly. "'I pray you, citizen, to have some regard for her.' "'All regard in the world, citizen Saint-Just,' protested Chauvelin, jovially. "'Methought that those pleasant reminiscences would cheer her.' "'Ah! here comes the soup,' he added, as a man in blue blouse and breeches, with sabots on his feet, slouched into the room carrying a tureen, which he incontinently placed upon the table. I feel sure that in England Lady Blakeney misses our excellent croute au pot, the glory of our bourgeois cookery. Lady Blakeney, a little soup? I thank you, sir, she murmured. Do try and eat something, little mother, Armand whispered in her ear. Try and keep up your strength for his sake, if not for mine. She turned a wan, pale face to him, and tried to smile. I'll try, dear, she said. You have taken bread and meat to the citizens in the coach, Chauvelin called out to the retreating figure of mine host. Hmm grunted the latter in assent. "'And see that the citizen-soldiers are well fed, or there will be trouble.' Mm. 
grunted the man again, after which he banged the door to behind him. "'Citizen Heron is loath to let the prisoner out of his sight,' explained Chauvelin lightly, now that we have reached the last, most important stage of our journey, so he is sharing Sir Percy's midday meal in the interior of the coach. He ate his soup with a relish, ostentatiously paying many small attentions to Marguerite all the time. He ordered meat for her—bread, butter—asked if any dainties could be got. He was apparently in the best of tempers. After he had eaten and drunk, he rose and bowed ceremoniously to her. "'Your pardon, Lady Blakeney,' he said, "'but I must confer with the prisoner now, and take from him full directions for the continuance of our journey. After that I go to the guard-house, which is some distance from here, right at the other end of the city. We pick up a fresh squad here—twenty hardened troopers from a cavalry regiment, usually stationed at Abbeville. They have had work to do in this town, which is a hotbed of treachery. I must go inspect the men, and the sergeant who will be in command. Citizen Heron leaves all these inspections to me. He likes to stay by his prisoner. In the meanwhile, you will be escorted back to your coach, where I pray you to await my arrival when we change guard first, then proceed on our way." Marguerite was longing to ask him many questions. Once again she would have smothered her pride and begged for news of her husband, but Chauvelin did not wait. He hurried out of the room, and Armand and Marguerite could hear him ordering the soldiers to take them forthwith back to the coach. As they came out of the inn, they saw the other coach some fifty metres further up the street. The horses that had done duty since leaving Abbeville had been taken out, and two soldiers in ragged shirts and with crimson caps set jauntily over their left ear were leading the two fresh horses along. The troopers were still mounting guard round both the coaches. They would be relieved presently. Marguerite would have given ten years of her life at this moment for the privilege of speaking to her husband, or even of seeing him, of seeing that he was well. A quick, wild plan sprang up in her mind that she would bribe the sergeant in command to grant her wish while Citizen Chauvelin was absent. The man had not an unkind face, and he must be very poor—people in France were very poor these days, though the rich had been robbed and luxurious homes devastated ostensibly to help the poor. She was about to put this sudden thought into execution, when Heron's hideous face, doubly hideous now, with that bandage of doubtful cleanliness cutting across his brow, appeared at the carriage window. He cursed violently and at the top of his voice. "'What are those demmed aristos doing out there?' he shouted. "'Just getting into the coach, citizen,' replied the sergeant promptly. And Armand and Marguerite were immediately ordered back into the coach. Heron remained at the window for a few moments longer. He had a toothpick in his hand which was using very freely. "'How much longer are we going to wait in this cursed hole?' he called out to the sergeant. "'Only a few moments longer, citizen. Citizen Chauvelin will be back soon with the guard.' A quarter of an hour later the clatter of cavalry horses on the rough, uneven pavement drew Marguerite's attention. She lowered the carriage window and looked out. Chauvelin had just returned with the new escort. He was on horseback. His horse's bridle, since he was but an indifferent horseman, was held by one of the troopers. Outside the inn he dismounted. Evidently he had taken full command of the expedition, and scarcely referred to Heron, who spent most of his time cursing at the men or the weather when he was not lying half asleep and partially drunk in the inside of the carriage. The changing of the guard was now accomplished quietly and in perfect order. The new escort consisted of twenty mounted men, including a sergeant and a corporal, and of two drivers, one for each coach. The cortege now was filled up in marching order. Ahead a small party of scouts, then the coach with Marguerite and Armand, closely surrounded by mounted men, and at a short distance the second coach, with Citizen Heron and the prisoner, equally well guarded. Chauvelin superintended all the arrangements himself. He spoke for some few moments with the sergeant, also with the driver of his own coach. 
He went to the window of the other carriage, probably in order to consult with Citizen Heron, or to take final directions from the prisoner. For Marguerite, who was watching him, saw him standing on the step and leaning well forward into the interior, whilst apparently he was taking notes on a small tablet which he had in his hand. A small knot of idlers had congregated in the narrow street. Men in blouses and boys in ragged breeches lounged against the veranda of the inn, and gazed with inexpressive, stolid eyes on the soldiers, the coaches, the citizen who wore the tricolour scarf. They had seen this sort of thing before now, aristos being conveyed to Paris under arrest, prisoners on their way to or from Amiens. They saw Marguerite's pale face at the carriage window. It was not the first woman they had seen under like circumstances, and there was no special interest about this aristo. They were smoking, or spitting, or just lounging idly against the balustrade. Marguerite wondered if none of them had wife, sister, or mother, or child, if every sympathy, every kind of feeling in these poor wretches had been atrophied by misery or by fear. At last everything was in order, and the small party ready to start. "'Does any one here know the chapel of the Holy Sepulchre, close by the park of the Château d'Ourde?' asked Chauvelin, vaguely addressing the knot of gaffers that stood closest to him. The men shook their heads. Some had dimly heard of the Château d'Ourde. It was some way in the interior of the forest of Boulogne, but no one knew about a chapel. People did not trouble about chapels nowadays. With the indifference so peculiar to local peasantry, these men knew no more of the surrounding country than the twelve or fifteen league circle that was within a walk of their sleepy little town. One of the scouts on ahead turned in his saddle and spoke to Citizen Chauvelin. "'I think I know the way pretty well, Citizen Chauvelin,' he said. "'At any rate, I know it as far as the forest of Boulogne.' Chauvelin referred to his tablets. "'That's good,' he said. "'Then, when you reach the milestone that stands on this road at the confine of the forest, bear sharply to your right, and skirt the wood until you see the hamlet of Le—something, Le—Le—yes, Le Croc. That's it, in the valley below.' "'I know Le Croc, I think,' said the trooper. "'Very well, then. At that point it seems that a wide road strikes it at right angles into the interior of the forest. You follow that until a stone chapel with a colonnaded porch stands before you on your left, and the walls and gates of a park on your right.' "'That is so, is it not, Sir Percy?' he added, once more turning towards the interior of the coach. Apparently the answer satisfied him, for he gave the quick word of command, "'En avant!' then turned back towards his own coach, and finally entered it. "'Do you know the Château d'Our, citizen Saint-Just?' he asked abruptly, as soon as the carriage began to move. Armand woke, as was habitual with him these days, from some gloomy reverie. "'Yes, citizen,' he replied. "'I know it. And the chapel of the Holy Sepulchre?' "'Yes, I know it, too.' Indeed, he knew the chateau well, and the little chapel in the forest, whither the fisher-folk from Portel and Boulogne came on a pilgrimage once a year, to lay their nets on the miracle-working relic. The chapel was disused now. Since the owner of the chateau had fled, no one had tended it, and the fisher-folk were afraid to wander out, lest their superstitious faith be counted against them by the authorities, who had abolished le bon Dieu. But Armand had found refuge there eighteen months ago, on his way to Calais, when Percy had risked his life in order to save him, Armand, from death. He could have groaned aloud with the anguish of this recollection, but Marguerite's aching nerves had thrilled at the name. Château d'Ourde! The chapel of the Holy Sepulchre! That was the place which Percy had mentioned in his letter, the place where he had given rendezvous to de Batz. Sir Andrew had said that the Dauphin could not possibly be there, yet Sir Percy was leading his enemies thither and had given the rendezvous there to de Batz. And this despite that whatever plans, whatever hopes, had been born in his mind, when he was still immured in the conciergerie prison, must have been set at naught by the clever counterplot of Chauvelin and Heron. 
At the merest suspicion that you have played us false, at a hint that you have led us into an ambush, or if merely our hopes of finding Capet at the end of the journey are frustrated, the lives of your wife and of your friend are forfeit to us, and they will both be shot before your eyes. With these words, with this precaution, those cunning fiends had effectually not only tied the schemer's hands, but forced him either to deliver the child to them, or to sacrifice his wife and his friend. The impasse was so horrible that she could not face it even in her thoughts. A strange, fever-like heat coursed through her veins, yet left her hands icy cold. She longed for, yet dreaded, the end of the journey, that awful grappling with the certainty of coming death. Perhaps, after all, Percy too had given up all hope. Long ago he had consecrated his life to the attainment of his own ideals, and there was a vein of fatalism in him. Perhaps he had resigned himself to the inevitable and his only desire now was to give up his life, as he had said, in the open, beneath God's sky, to draw his last breath with the storm-clouds tossed through infinity above him, and the murmur of the wind in the trees to sing him to rest. Crecy was gradually fading into the distance, wrapped in a mantle of damp and mist. For a long while Marguerite could see the sloping slate roofs glimmering like steel in the grey afternoon light, and the quaint church-tower with its beautiful lantern, through the pierced stonework of which shone patches of the leaden sky. Then a sudden twist of the road hid the city from view. Only the outlying churchyard remained in sight, with its white monuments and granite crosses, over which the dark yews, wet with the rain and shaken by the gale, sent showers of diamond-like sprays. End of chapter 44